Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Don't get mad. Get media. Mad Pod. Hey everybody, how you doing? JDollyMadPod.com. And coming up on the next Mad Pod, how did the flock of seagulls get their name? Mike, it's rumored the band took its name from a line in the song Toiler on the Sea by the Stranglers, which appears on their album Black and White. Fact or fiction? That's, that's fact. I mean, the Stranglers were my absolute favorite band in, the, in that period. We went to see the Stranglers live in Liverpool, and we were right in the front row, and Hugh Cornwell just uh, right in the middle of that song. And when he yells out, a flock of seagulls, he, he kind of, you know, the music stops, and he pointed right at me and said, a flock of seagulls. And I, I looked at Frank, and I said, it's a sign from God. We're changing the name of the band to a flock of seagulls. dangerous to know Originally from Liverpool, England, and joining us live coast to coast from Orlando, Florida, vocalist, keyboardist, songwriter, and founding member of the new wave group, A Flock of Seagulls, Mike Score. Welcome, Mike. A pleasure speaking with you, my friend. Hey, Shadow. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Not too bad at all. I'm enjoying life out here. You know, everything's good with the band. And um, it's all cream. You've been in Florida for some time, Mike. Yeah, I kind of ended up here. Uh, traveled around a lot, lived in a few different places. And uh, I kind of like Florida because of the boat situation. I'm into boats and sailing and stuff like that. And um, the area that I live in is, is pretty uh, pretty open. You know, there's not a lot of traffic, not a lot of... Uh, people getting in the way. It's it's real nice. It, I mean, it gets hot and there's hurricanes, but everywhere has got some problems. I knew about your penchant for boating. I saw a special on VH1 several years ago. I knew you were near the coast. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Once once you've lived on the coast, that's it. You got it. You've got to live on the coast from from then on. Everybody says that. Uh huh. Mike, take us back. How did you and your brother, drummer Ali Score, guitarist Paul Reynolds, and bassist Frank Maudsley get together back in 1980, Liverpool? Um, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a typical story. We, we had nothing really to do. I, I'd already been in bands. I'd, I'd, uh, originally I was a hairdresser and I did a lot of, uh, hair cutting for people in bands and punk styling and stuff like that. And, you know, I met a lot of people that were in local bands and I would go to see them and, uh, have a really good time at the, at the gigs. So I decided to join a band, which I did. And, um, that band got signed up but they didn't want me in the band. So I said, this ain't good enough for me. I went and started my own band with my brother, and uh, you know Frank was working as a hairdresser too. And we, we really did it just for fun and to fill in the nights, you know. And um, we weren't like a lot of other Liverpool bands that we ran out and played, though. We just used to rehearse for seven or eight hours a night and write songs, and, and um, we probably did that every night for about a year. I mean every night not no no breaks and when we came out of it we 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 had our own sound and we had our songs and we went and played a couple of places and just knocked people out you know so uh then we we were lucky enough to run into somebody that had links with the record company and very quickly after that we got a huge record deal and uh, and then basically we came to america with squeeze and the whole thing just took off Mike, it's rumored the band took its name from a line in the song Toiler on the Sea by the Stranglers, which appears on their album Black and White. Fact or fiction? That's, that's fact. I mean, the Stranglers were my absolute favorite band in, the, in that period. 
and the black and white album was my favorite album and we went to see the stranglers live in liverpool and we were right in the front row and hugh cornwell just uh, right in the middle of that song this was i think about two days after that uh, that album came out and when he yells out a flock of seagulls he he kind of you know the music stops and he pointed right at me and said a flock of seagulls and I, I looked at Frank and I said, it's a sign from God. We're changing the name of the band to A Flock of Seagulls. Um, and previously, we were toying with the name Level 7. But um, at that time, Level 42 had just come out. So, you know, we knew we had to change the name to something. And it was the perfect, perfect uh, uh, foil for us because I was also at the same time reading Jonathan Livingston Seagull and it seemed to me like the whole Seagulls thing was coming right at me. The Stranglers, it's amazing. You're in good company here, Mike, because we just had J.J. Burnell on with us a couple of months ago. Oh, great. What an awesome bass player he is. Awesome. Now, as well known for the bizarrely teased haircuts as the classic hit single, I Ran, so far away, A Flock of Seagulls were one of the truly infamous chart entries of the New Wave era. Now, as you mentioned, Mike, you and Frank were former hairdressers. Did the music originally take shape just as a sideline? Well, like I said, you know, we we hung out with a lot of musicians, and we did their hair, and we went to see a lot of bands because, you know, we were doing... uh, a lot of punk kids that went to certain clubs and they had their their bands and and the whole new wave thing was starting up because we weren't really punks we were a little bit bit more polished you know in our style than that and um but we started to go see bands and we saw like simple minds and there was only 10 people there and we saw um a band called the frantic elevators which uh, eventually you know the singer became uh, simply red mick hucknell and we were seeing some really classy stuff but you know, we would go upstairs and mess around and try and be in bands and stuff. And it was more like a passion than a sideline. And But we didn't really want to go out and play because we'd see these bands that were professional and we're like, well, we won't be that good for a while. And it was mostly rehearsal and mostly so we could, you know, go have some fun and get drunk and play. I mean, every time we went to a show, we would go back and rehearse and see if our songs were as good as theirs. And... Like I say, after about a year, we realized that we were actually a really good band and and should put it out there, you know? True or false, Mike, your debut album is billed as a, quote, concept album, end quote, about alien abduction. Um, It's very loosely about that. Um, When I was a kid, I was totally into sci-fi, which I still am, um, but I have other things as well in my head. But when I was, you know, from, say, 12 till 19, I was just sci-fi crazy. And um, me and my brother, we were out one night kind of uh, having a few beers when I was about 17. And uh, I saw saw a flying saucer, and that kind of uh, stimulated Iran and stuff like that. And and I think there was a movie out, um, but I can't remember what it was called, but it was about an alien coming to to Earth and, and some girl falling in love with him. I think it was Starman. And again, all that stuff, it kind of muddled around in my head and influenced a lot of sci-fi stuff. So in a way, it was conceptual, but it wasn't like a story conceptual. I didn't try that until Story of a Young Heart. Mike is an aerospace engineer and a professor of engineering. I'm certainly a believer. Right. Oh, it's out there. I'm definitely. You know, we can't be alone. That's right. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people in England and uh, Europe, you know, they crossed the Atlantic Ocean hundreds of years ago. They didn't know there were Indians there already, but they were there anyway. Now, the first song I ran, 
describes a person walking down the avenue, seeing an attractive female, and then a myriad of alien influences start. I quote here, A beam of light comes shining down on you as the aurora borealis comes in view. That was some elaborate writing, Mike. Was uh, UFO the inspiration? Describes a person walking down the avenue, seeing an attractive female, and then a myriad of alien influences start. I quote here, A beam of light comes shining down on you as the aurora borealis comes in view. End quote. That was some elaborate writing, Mike. Were aliens the true inspiration? Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole thing was I was putting myself in the position of, uh, of meeting an alien, and, you know, usually aliens are, are monsters or something like that in movies, and I wanted it to be completely different. The aliens were, like, beautiful, like, I mean, you know, just so that you'd be totally taken by them. And then I read a lot of stuff about alien abductions and stuff like that, and um, I, I, wanted, I wanted aliens to be beautiful and friendly, you know, so that you'd fall in love with them. I mean, I, I can't see them coming to Earth and scaring the hell out of us, but I can see them coming to Earth and at least making themselves presentable because they're going to be so far ahead of us that, that we will be like children to them and they'll just take us away and teach us things, you know? Mike, a flock of seagulls benefited considerably from MTV's heavy rotation of the Iran video during the summer of 1982. After releasing its debut EP on Cocteau Records early in 1981, and while that record failed to chart, its lead track, Telecommunication, became an underground hit in Euro disco and New Wave clubs internationally. How did you get the label deal with Jive in the U.S., Mike? Um, well, we were actually with Jive in England, and I think Jive hooked up with uh, Arista out in America. And um, because of telecommunication being such a club hit, they wanted us to come and uh, basically play a lot of dance clubs and boost the record and maybe you know, turn it into a full single release. And I, I'm not sure because I wasn't on the business side of it, but I think once they started to hear stuff like Iran, they went, oh, this isn't just a club band. This is actually a rock band that can go out and, and do real gigs. And uh, I, I know it was, a, we'd been in America about three or four months before they released the album. And as soon as they did release the album, it was obvious that, you know, we had a great audience here. So um, I think we were lucky as well with MTV because MTV had just started and we were really, you know, one of their new look bands. We had the look. We had what they wanted. We were dynamic. No one had ever seen us before, so it wasn't like any kind of rehash. And um, for us, you know, it, it was just like all the dominoes lined up. Everything was in a row. All the ducks were in a row. And you knock the first one down, everything just fell into place. Now, the Monster Club and AMFM radio single was, I Ran So Far Away, taken from the self-titled Jive LP, hitting number 9 pop July 10, 1982, with a most impressive 22-week chart run on the Billboard Top 40 stateside. But in the UK, Mike, fell short of the top 10. What was the deal with that classic track missing the top spot in your homeland? Um, I think, you know, it was because we weren't there. We were in America pushing here to try and get a number one or at least a number, you know, a top five single, which would have put us into the big world. We were, we were little fish in the big pond of rock and roll at that time. And I think if we'd have gone back to England maybe, you know, three or four months earlier and done a, done a major tour while it was uh, in the top 20 over there, I think it would have gone, you know, top five in England as well. 
I mean, it was also a number one in Australia, and we never went there because we were just so busy. We were touring with the psychedelic furs and the go-go's and the police, and you know, we had major, major tours going on. And when something like that happens, uh, you know, you you just can't fill every little pocket. You know, you just get worn out. So. America was our market, and we stayed here and worked it. An interesting note of trivia, Mike. I remember hearing this at the time. Because the United States had deep tensions with Iran during this time, the U.S. 45 RPM version of Iran was called Iran So Far Away. That's true, isn't it? I think it is, yeah, because that's not actually the title of the song. It's just simply called Iran. I think they just wanted to, uh, to let people know it wasn't a political song, but then again, in a strange way, because it was called Iran, and there was a lot of stuff going on with Iran, the country, I think it, as soon as somebody said Iran on the radio, it, you know, it caught people's ears, and they, they just listened to what was going on. And, of course, they got our fabulous single instead of the news. <laughs> Absolutely. With your interest in the alien connection, have you ever visited Roswell, New Mexico? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've driven through there a couple of times, and... To tell you the truth, I think if they're ever going to land anywhere, it's not going to be Roswell. <laughs> <laughs> now, the follow-up single was Space Age Love Song, issued November 13, 1982, reaching number 30 pop with an additional 18-week run. Mike, you were an innovator in the FM radio sound of the early 1980s. What do you think of the latest musical movements? Hip-hop, trip-hop, techno, industrial um, well, you know, I think every genre of music has its its, uh, its great exponents. Um, I'm not a huge fan of hip hop, but I liked I like some of the songs. Uh, and again, you know, with techno and ambient and stuff like that, I like some of it. But I think if you listen to it too much, it just becomes it, you know everything starts to sound the same. Um, music since since the '80s seems to have split off into many genres and people. You know, they get into it like the club kids. They love the techno and the ambient and, and all the dance music and stuff like that. And I, I, I guess the colleges have, have gone for the hip-hop thing. Um, but what I can see now is, is a major influence of the 80s on the new pop bands that are starting to come up. I mean, there, there has always been a little bit of influence, but now I'm seeing a lot more of the the style influence, the, the colorful influence, the... Um, uh, you know, the, the ha- let's have fun with it influence, you know? Don't get mad, get media. Live coast mad to coast from Central Florida with vocalist, keyboardist, songwriter, and founding member of the new wave group A Flock of Seagulls, Mike Score joins us. Mike, the album Listen yielded Wishing If I Had a Photograph of You, reissued May 14, 1983, charting top 10 UK, number 26 Billboard Pop, and also released as a previous single earlier in 83. Mike, we've seen you as a forerunner of high fashion, light years ahead of your time. Do you still view yourself that way? Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, fashion is, uh, well, that kind of fashion, you have to be pretty hip and pretty young and pretty good looking to carry it. And uh, I think as you get older, you've kind of got to, uh, to mellow a bit and try and, uh, you know, just, just, just stay, uh, stay close to fashion um, I think I'd look at my age now a bit daft if I tried to do my hair like that and wear the little black space suit type things on stage. So I prefer to just mellow out and uh, and know that at one point, you know, I was the, the peak of what it could be, you know, which is cool. And a lot of people would like to see me with my hair like that and stuff. But, uh, 
you know, I think the way Elton John does it sometimes, which is kind of tongue in cheek, is really good. And I would, if the band was ever, you know, big enough to do that kind of thing, I may, I may go that direction and just ham it up a bit with my own style. You know, take a little, a little, uh, little snippet myself. You know, just for fun. And Mike, as a side question, how did you invent your trademark hairstyles? <laughs> Well, it's it's kind of a ha- another happy accident, uh, which the band is. You know, we've had quite a lot of happy accidents as we go along. Um, I was we were playing a show once, and I had a, a basically a Ziggy Stardust kind of hairstyle, and I was looking in the mirror. But Frank came up behind me, trying to also look in the mirror, and wanted me to stoop down a bit so he could see. And he put his hand on top of my head, and basically just collapsed the middle of my hair. And my manager then came up, and he was like, come on, you guys have got to go on stage now. So I didn't have time to fix it. I walked on stage with the sides sticking up, and I noticed a few people, you know, kind of pointed at it. And then uh, being a hairdresser, I just kind of went, you know, that does look really good. So I just messed and messed and messed with it. And after about doing it about four or five shows later, it evolved into uh, a style, you know. And the, I knew it was right when this, uh, I can't remember where we played, but, a young girl, probably about 14 years old, she climbed up on stage once and she touched my hair and fainted. And I went, I think I got something here. <laughs> well, I think the hair, you know, it allowed a lot of kids to um, to realize who the band were. Maybe before that we were a little bit faceless. Um, but I think, you know, with, with, with MTV and the style, a lot it was immediate. People knew immediately who it was. And so it helped the band to uh, to gain its place, you know. Now, listen to this, Mike. I Ran So Far Away was the lead theme used in commercials for the video game Grand Theft Auto Vice City and also featured in the game itself. And in 2002, as part of the new wave radio station Wave 103, Space Age Love Song also appeared in the prequel Grand Theft Auto Vice City Stories. Why are these songs so durable, Mike? Um, It's hard to say, you know, because when you write a song, you don't, you don't know it's going to be like that. You just write it, and you think it's the best thing you can do at the time, and then, of course, you write the next song, and then you just go, oh, this is better than that one. For some reason, Iran caught the imagination and was, you know, it's a gem, it's a classic of its era, and as soon as people hear Iran, they think of the 80s, you know, and the 80s itself seems to be a classic era like the 60s was, and um, I think that because it was at right at the beginning of that that whole era, it became um, almost a theme. You know, it's a 1982 song, and it just carried on and on and on. I think a lot of people were having good times when that song came out. Uh, I think there was plenty of money around for people to do stuff, and a lot of people um, have a very nostalgic feel about that that era and that song. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of other bands have great songs from that period, but you know, Iran, for some reason, stands up, and so does Wishing, and so does Space Age. They all stand up as 80s classics. And additionally, the song was used in a 1983 advertisement for the Opal Tea Car-based Daewoo Mayepsi, as well as a Kia commercial back in 2002. Mike, had you ever thought of compiling a CD of the group's many B-sides? Um, I think there, we did actually do that once, um, but I don't, I mean, we, we don't actually have a record deal right now. We're running our own, uh, you know, uh, I, put a, I put my own uh, album out, which was a Flock of Seagulls out about eight, nine years ago. The trouble with record labels and stuff is, you know, they want product and they want it now. 
And as far as songwriting goes and stuff like that, I can't write to order. I just write when I feel like it. And although it may be nice to have the backing of a record company, the pressures of record companies can, can also be very, very... Um, Stifling. Yeah, you can stifle your creativity. They want you to do a lot of things that you, you know, wouldn't normally do. And then, of course, your whole career hangs on it because they have you in contract and stuff like that. And tell you the truth, since uh, our first record deal ended, I've never needed a record deal to, to enjoy music, you know. I never started a band to get a record deal. I started it because I was having fun and hanging out with band guys, and, and I still feel the same. It's fun, I want to do it, and if I can make a good living and, and travel the world, great. You're right. Every guest on this program says exactly the same thing. Plus, when you have a hit record, the record company wants every other song after that to sound like the same song. Exactly. They're selling soap. They're not selling, you know, style or ideas. They're just selling product, which, you know, is their thing and, and fair, fair, fair enough for them. They put their money into it to do that. But I think there's a whole thing now also where it's not artists that run record companies anymore, you know, or, or artistic people. It's accountants and lawyers, and it's all done by how much profit there is, which is kind of sad. I mean, you know, people like Island Records and stuff like that were not created with that in mind, and I don't think Arista were, and I don't think Jive were. Of course, they want to make money, but they still want to have great artists and stuff on their labels. So true. Mike, Setting Sun has always been one of my favorite records. What was the inspiration? Um, well, really, I was in love with someone when I wrote the song, and the song basically was just trying to say that, uh, you know, when the when a love dies, it's like the sun setting, but, you know, it, it, it's also eternal, as far as we know. You know, it will go on forever, and that was just the way I was feeling. And um, it was just my way of saying, you know, I was sad that my love was like the setting sun. It was dying. That's about it, really. Mike, your distinctive hairstyle has been mentioned, copied, and parodied many times in the media, most notably in the American television sitcoms Friends by Chandler and Ross during their college years while joining a new wave band, and that 70s show, as well as being mentioned in cult movies, Pulp Fiction, and The Wedding Singer. Are you still creating new looks, Mike? Uh, no, I haven't, I haven't really had anything to do with hairdressing for, oh, maybe... 15 or 16 years, I, you know, I have friends that say to me, come on, cut my hair, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm so past that now, that was a, that was, it's such a hard job, you know, hairdressing is you're on your feet all day, and I prefer to do things that are not hard. <laughs> and you can never please everyone in hairdressing, I could only imagine. Uh-huh. Well, you know, hairdressing is a compromise of the way you see someone. And the customer. You know, so... Now, in 2003, a flock of seagulls performed for the unveiling of the Syracuse A-League soccer team's name, Syracuse Salty Dogs, and logo in Syracuse, New York, returning later that year for a performance at one of the Salty Dogs games at Syracuse's PNC Stadium. How did you get involved with the sports aspect, Mike? Um, I'm not really sure how that came up, but it was a soccer game. And I'm into soccer. I support Leeds United, who are taking the, the dive of a lifetime right now. But, um, you know, for, to, to uh, see people trying to bring soccer to America, which is, you know, it's a fabulous game to watch and, and play. And when the offer got made to us, we were like, yeah, we'll go and support that. You know, we, we will, uh, 
go and watch a soccer game and, and see what's happening and, and hope that the Salty Dogs, you know, get up there. But um, we're always interested. We've, we've played a number of uh, hockey games and soccer games and stuff like that because, you know, every time we play, for us it's like a little holiday. We go and do our thing and we like to go and, and get involved with whatever the, the show is about as well. Don't get mad. Get media. Live coast to coast from Central Florida with vocalist, keyboardist, songwriter, and founding member of the new wave group A Flock of Seagulls, Mike Score joins us. Mike, on August 11th, 1984, The More You Live, The More You Love, from the Jive album The Story of a Young Heart, peaked at number 56 on the Billboard Hot 100. Mike, what future projects are on the horizon? Um, well, like I say, because we don't have a record company as such, you know, it, it hasn't stopped me writing songs. I have hundreds of songs that I've written, um, I've, but I've never really pushed to, to do major releases and stuff like that. Obviously, you know, if, if a record company came to us with a, with a great prospect and a great, um, a great deal, then we'd probably take it because a lot of fans are bugging us, you know, put some of this new stuff out. We play it live, and they want to get it. Um, I think with the advent of stuff like MySpace, where you can put stuff up for download, and, you know, download is definitely the way it's all going to be in the future. There's, you know, I don't think record stores and stuff like that are going to last that much longer unless they become download stores. Um, I think that we will be releasing tunes on MySpace uh, for sale, or and then fans will be able to choose from a hundred different songs and make their own album. You know, it won't be a case of here's ten songs we wrote. Uh, we may put up recommendations of this bunch of songs. We would have made a CD using these songs, but there'll be other songs and there'll be ideas and different versions of songs. And I think looking at it, um, for for people that, that buy uh, music and, and like to listen, it's going to be a great thing because you'll be able to have four different versions of a song or a song as a demo up there and then the finished thing. And I think the future of it looks awesome, but there's been a big gap in the last, say, five to ten years when, you know, nobody really knew how the Internet and uh, stuff like that was going to affect bands and, and record companies and stuff. And it's been a very weird time. Now, Paul Reynolds left after the 1984 album The Story of a Young Heart, replaced by Gary Stedman. Additionally, the band also added keyboardist Chris Chrysophus, that lineup showcased on 1986's Dream Come True. Mike, you were forerunners for early synth pop. Gary Newman, David Bowie, and you were the only ones that touched on space in the early 1980s period. Agreed? Um, well, you know, there was uh, Space Oddity and stuff like that with David Bowie and Starman. Um, I, I mean, but he did it in, uh, in a more... I, I, I can only say in a more Bowie way. We did it in a very new wave way, which, you know, was um, just the feeling of the time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, stuff that Bowie did early on, um, Space Oddity and stuff, was totally affected the way I wrote songs, you know, because when, when you hear that stuff, you realize that you can write about that stuff and be accepted. Why did Paul Reynolds leave the group, Mike? Well, Paul left the band because he had the typical rock and roll problems, um, you know, that get defined as musical differences. But uh, Paul did have his, his problems with partying too much. And uh, and um, there's a thing in a band where you basically, you always say, look, come inside the band, because whatever goes on outside the band 
you know, if we all talk to each other, we'll survive and, and we'll go on, whether it's a different manager or different roadies or different record company. But unfortunately, Paul didn't want to listen to that. And uh, he kind of got sidetracked by many of the things that go on outside the band. And I have been blamed for this many times, but I won't work with somebody that, that goes outside, if you know what I mean. Now, you assembled a new lineup of a flock of seagulls in 1989, releasing the single Magic and touring the U.S. Mike, what was your sentiment toward winning a Grammy for DNA? <laughs> That's incredible. I always said that uh, when we got the Grammy for DNA, does that mean I'm not a good singer? <laughs> it's a backhanded compliment. It, it, it kind of is, but I, I think, you know, I think really we got the Grammy because it was kind of... Um, I mean, there were great bands out there, like the Police and stuff, winning Grammys and, and stuff like that. And I think they wanted to include us in that. And we were one of the only bands that actually put an instrumental out. I think I think there was only two two uh, two songs in the category. And when I, I think I remember listening and going, "Well, we, we'll win a Grammy for that because the other song is, you know, is not um, as dynamic, not as good. It's just a little piece of music." But I think it was a way of of, of also it was almost like, to me, it was like a thank you for, for breaking new ground, you know, and uh, because music was, uh, even punk music was getting very stale. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, we are re revolting against society, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, and then a year later, we're still revolting against society, and it was just time for a, uh, a like an upscale version of punk to come through, you know. And I think that the, that Grammy was kind of a thank you for for uh, sending music in a new direction. Now, the band continued to tour worldwide with major changes to its members, and in 1996 released a new album, The Light at the End of the World. Mike, do you believe your music has changed from your debut in the early 1980s? Um, I hope so, yeah. I mean, I hope it keeps the core of, of what A Flock of Seagulls is about. But I'm not here to repeat myself over and over again. I'm I'm here to um, to experiment and maybe try and write a couple of funky songs and, and see what that's all about, and write a couple of ballads and see what that's all about. And you know, the thing is, I change musicians because I like to interact and find different influences from different people. And the people that I have in the band are, to me, they don't have to be great musicians. They just have to be my friends, and we have fun writing songs and going on the road. And I don't want to play Iran over and over and over and have 20 songs that all sound like Iran and, you know, six songs that all sound like Space Age. And, uh, and you know, I don't just want to be repeating my hits. I want to do, to be influenced by whatever's going on around me at the time, even, even from grunge music through hip-hop. I hope that somewhere along the line it influences me to at least try and see how it fits into my way of doing things. Do you feel the instrumentation has changed? Uh, we've gone a little bit uh, more guitar-heavy, uh, simply because I find it much easier to write on guitar these days. Um, you know, when, when I started playing synths, they were very simple little toys, you know, and it was easy to just press a button and make a weird noise and then sing along with it. And that was a lot of fun. Um, but that's because I really didn't know anything about music. I couldn't play anything, and I had no idea of concept of what synths were, except that you turned a button, pressed a key, and it made a noise. 
now these days the technology of synthesizers is major. You can make a whole album on one synthesizer. Um, so guitar has become the simplest thing just to pick it up and sit and watch TV and strum it and sing a few notes, you know? Um, I still love playing synths, but because of their complexity, um, it's sometimes more difficult to, to be inspired by what they will do. I mean, there are simple synths out there still, uh, but there's still nothing quite like putting your feet up, sitting out there with a guitar and the TV on, eating a hot dog and uh, drinking a Coke. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Mike, are you inspired by other media such as film? And the reason I ask, because when I watched Nightmares, I saw such theatrics in the video. I noticed a lot of element of the film medium. Um, I love I love movies, and if, if I hadn't have been a musician, I think somehow I would have found a way to get into movies. Um, one of my hobbies as I get older is becoming, uh, you know, I, I would like to build a small movie studio and mess around making small independent films. Um, I never really, though, liked making videos because I think they tried to make videos too much about what the song is about, you know, and to me that's not necessarily what a video is about. A video is about just showing the band um, of course, when we did stuff like Nightmares, uh, you know, it, it was actually mostly Frank's idea was to turn it into a mini-movie. Um, I could never get up early enough in the, in the day to work on that stuff, but Frank could. So uh, anything to do with videos was mainly you know, Frank's, Frank's ballpark. Now, in September 2004, a flock of seagulls reformed again and played a small number of live shows in the U.S., including performances at Nike Run Hit Wonder, a series of 5,000 and 10,000 meter road races featuring popular bands including Devo, General Public, and Tommy Two-Tone playing alongside the race course. You seem to be involved in several sports-related appearances, Mike. Are you a sports fan? Um, up to a point. Yes, I mean, I, I, I like, like I said before, I like the idea that we can play and then it's not just a gig and it's over. I like the idea that we can play and then there's something for us to go and do, uh, especially on the Nike runs, we would play and then, you know, we would go over and watch Devo. And, and the whole thing to us was like, hey, we're having a good time too. We're not just, you know, we're not just a band that's, that's, um, playing our stuff and then packing up and leaving. It's like, hey, we're playing our stuff. We're entertaining the runners. And then we've got something to do as well. We can go see Devo or we can go see a hockey game or we can go hang out with some football players, you know, and stuff like that. So for us, it makes it a lot more fun to be able to, to, uh, to hang out for a few hours, talk to fans, see an event. And, and, you know, it's not just a gig. It's a whole event for us. Any other news for us, Mike, musical or otherwise? Well, we've just opened our own uh, MySpace site about three weeks ago, and we're setting up, setting up for, uh, you know, so we have merchandising, and there'll be new songs coming up on there. And in three weeks, we, I think we've had 22,000 hits, and we've made a lot of friends on there, and it's becoming our the way to talk to the band. We run it ourselves. We don't employ anyone to run it or anything like that. So if people want to talk to us directly, um, the MySpace site, which is, you know, MySpace, a flock of seagulls, um, is the way to go. And people can ask us questions directly. We've had a lot of people talking about seeing us in 1982. Uh, we have a blog page which tells them, you know, we can actually tell our story about the past and about what we're doing in the future and where we're, where we're headed. And 
shows that are coming up. And for that reason, I think MySpace is actually a pretty wonderful thing. For me, it's the best thing I've seen on the Internet. By the way, Mike, how was your trip to Peru? Uh, we had the most awesome time in Peru. Everybody there was really nice to us. The show itself was sold out, and the fans were incredible. The band was, you know, I mean, when you've got good fans like that that support you, you, you cannot fail to have a good show. Um, when people treat you well, like the promoters and, and the, the show people, it just makes it such a great event. And again, you know, back to the MySpace thing, we already put some photographs up on there of us in Peru, and it's, a, it's an immediate way of, of, um, of being partly with your band. You know, if, when I was young and I was into bands like Wishbone Ash and stuff like that, I would have been on there every day going, where is my band played? What was the show like? You know, where, where, what was their audience like? And for me, it's a, it's a perfect way to contact the band. And stuff like Peru, and we do shows like that, or any show where people can't go to it, at least they can have a look and, and see what's going on. Live coast-to-coast coast from Central Florida, vocalist, keyboardist, songwriter, and founding member of the New Wave group of Flock of Seagulls, Mike Score. Mike, thank you so much for taking time to be with us and for helping us feature your many greatest and latest hits, my friend. Thanks, Chad. It's been a pleasure. Chad Ollie with you, madpod.com. Hey, and if you have a headache, go over to uh, Angie B. She won't give you a headache, but she is sponsored by Tylenol PM. So check out uh, unwind.podshow.com with Angie B. And also, Mobile One. Mobile One is great, great, great. It's a great source for your car. It's a great source for your engine. So if you're having pings and pans and, and your car's not just running right, check your oil. And try Mobile One. Mad Pod, Mad Pod, dangerous to know. If you're a little crazy, then listen to our show. Mad Pod, Mad Pod, dangerous to hear. If you're a little crazy, then we can bend your ear.